I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and find Proverbs chapter 18. We'll begin with Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. On Sunday mornings, we have been looking at uh, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom that tells us how we can flourish in this life in a way that uh, brings honor and glory to the Lord. And uh, this morning, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, as we think about this subject, marriage 101, just the fundamentals and the basics of marriage. Some of you uh, younger people never had the privilege to hear world-famed evangelist Billy Graham uh, but for 50, 60, or more years, he was the most famous preacher in the world, and he preached to more people than anybody in all of recorded history. Uh, more than 200 million people Billy Graham preached to face-to-face. -face. During the days of his ministry, he had a column that was syndicated in many newspapers across the land, People were writing questions about the Bible and the Christian life. And uh, on one occasion, he got a letter that said, uh, In heaven, will we be married? If so, will I be married to the same woman? My wife and I have been married and peacefully for many years. My problem is, I just can't imagine spending an eternity with my wife. 100,000 years or so, yes. But eternity, well, I just don't see how I can stand it. <laughs> I'm sure Dr. Graham got a chuckle out of that one. Marriage in the United States is on the decline. Now, the divorce rate in recent years has stabilized. It's not getting any worse primarily because there are millions and millions of people who just live together without benefit of marriage, cohabitating. And those who do choose to marry do so at a much later age. In 1980, the average median age for a man in America at the wedding date was 24.7 years. Today it's 30 years. For a woman in 1980, the average age at marriage was 22. Now it's 28. Five plus more years for the average man. Six plus more years for the average woman. Marriage has fallen on hard times in the United States of America. Perhaps it's because so many have uh, lived the experience which the old adage that says love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. Well, some of you chuckle because uh, you're married and you know what I'm talking about. So this morning as we uh, see what uh, God has to say to us in the book of Proverbs about marriage, I want you to see with me, first of all, that marriage is God's good gift for human flourishing. And we see this in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. We're calling this series of sermons, Proverbs, God's wisdom for human flourishing. And God has given us inspired wisdom in the book of Proverbs about how to flourish in the context of the marriage relationship. 
And so we begin with Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, where we read that Solomon writes, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now, when we read this word favor here, think grace, God's grace to husbands and wife. And we see in the first part of this verse that if you find a wife, if you're a man who finds a wife, you, you find that which is good. That is, marriage is to be embraced. We are to see it as God's good gift to men and women for human flourishing. Look in chapter 19, verse 14. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents. Now focus on this last uh, phrase here in verse 14. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife is an understanding wife. A prudent wife is a wise wife. And so we see both in Proverbs 18.22 and in Proverbs 19.14 this phrase, from the Lord. Marriage is from the Lord. Marriage is God's design for human flourishing. Now, the very best gift that God has given to us is the gift of eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not something you and I work for and earn. Salvation is the gift of God. It is the grace gift of God, which we receive when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. But I think you can make a pretty compelling case that beyond this gift of eternal life, which comes to us through faith in Christ, the greatest gift that God has given to humanity is this gift of marriage. Marriage, I say again, is God's gift for human flourishing. God does not mean for us to live alone. Now, we'll come back to Proverbs, but find the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 2. And let's just go back to the very foundation of the creation and the very foundation of uh, the family and the marriage relationship. And just pull this one verse out here. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 18. The Lord God said, this is what God is speaking to Adam in the Garden of Eden. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper or a completer suitable for him. Uh, and, and so we see that it's, it's part of God's... Uh, God's eternal plan for men and women to come together in the marriage relationship. Uh, not to be alone, but to be married. And, and notice the contrast there between good and not good. It is not good for man to be alone. But we read in Proverbs, it is good for a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. So then the question must be raised, what about all the people who don't get married? What about all the single people who never have a, a husband or never have a wife? Well, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so let's find 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that there are exceptions to God's general design for human flourishing as it relates to uh, marriage. So let's go to to Paul's letter, to first letter to the church in Corinth, and the whole chapter, chapter 7 is given over to instructions about marriage and sexuality and marriage and being single and being married. But let's just choose three verses here, verses 32, 33, and 34. 
Now, Paul said, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. So Paul is saying here there are those exceptions where God chooses some people to remain unmarried for the course of a lifetime in order that they might be fully and wholly devoted into the service of the Lord. But if you have a husband or a wife and you have responsibilities to your spouse that would somehow limit your ability to focus full-time on the Lord because you have to deal with your responsibilities as a husband or a wife. Now, Paul himself was a person like that. Uh, Paul was unmarried. Paul was a single man. And he talks about that in previous uh, verses in this uh, seventh chapter. I mean, if you read the, the, the life story of Paul in the book of Acts, and you read between the blanks in the letters that Paul wrote, Paul was a man who was constantly on the move. He had a very strenuous uh, lifestyle. He faced all manner of persecution. And that'd be a, a, a very difficult uh, for Paul uh, to care for a wife with the kind of uh, apostolic ministry that God called him uh, to. Uh, and so in certain cases, God calls certain people to a lifetime of singleness so that they might focus ex their time and energy and attention exclusively on the Lord. I think of uh, Lottie Moon. Now, we Southern Baptists, uh, we take up a, an offering every year at Christmas uh, to support the work of our Southern Baptist International Mission Board missionaries around the world. And uh, this offering we take up is named for Lottie Moon because she was the one who suggested uh, that uh, churches in the United States take up an offering at Christmas. She was a missionary in China for almost 40 years. She died in Asia. Uh, but she never married. She was engaged once to be married to Professor Crawford Toy, who was a, a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the 19th century, but Professor Toy had to be dismissed from the faculty because he turned his back on sound doctrine. And uh, when he apostatized, then Lottie Moon broke off the engagement with Professor Toy, and she remained unmarried her entire life. Uh, so it is the case that God set certain people uh, apart to, to be single to serve him. But for the most part, God uh, has designed marriage for our welfare and for our flourishing. And, and so we read in Proverbs chapter, chapters uh, 18 and 19, a prudent wife is from the Lord, and he who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor from the Lord. So to all of you who are unmarried and who want to be, I'm especially talking to these young high school and college age students. God's plan for you, unless you were the one of those rare exceptions to be single so that you could serve the Lord, God's plan for you is to find a husband 
or to find a wife. Now, in Bible times, uh, parents uh, did the choosing. Uh, in this day and age, uh, we get to choose our mate, right? And in our society, it is basically the, the young man who chooses the mate. He's the, he's, he's the one who pursues the bride. Now, here's what I've been hearing in recent years, guys. It's your pastor talking to you. There are a lot of girls that would be delighted to, to get to know you and to see if you're a marriageable material or if they're marriageable material, but you just, I don't know if you're intimidated by them, afraid of them. <laughs> girls are saying, where are the guys? Well, some of them are sitting around in their basement playing uh, video games waiting for Ms. Wright to fall into their lap. <laughs> Good luck with that. God's plan, young men, God's plan, young ladies, is for you to be married. The guys you must pursue. How? Well, let me suggest that you at least make it a, an earnest matter of prayer. Are you praying for God to show you your life's mate? Pray about it. When I was 15 years of age, we had a guest preacher come to my home church for a week of gospel meetings. We used to call revival meetings. And uh, one night we had a youth fellowship after the service, and the visiting preacher spoke to our youth group. And he said, uh, you need to be praying about who you're going to marry someday. And I listened carefully. And when I was a 15-year-old, I began to pray, God, number one, lead me to the person that you have chosen for me to marry. And number two, I began to pray for her that she would come to know Christ. I was 15. Kim was 11. I was a Christian. She was not yet a Christian. Would not accept Christ until she was 18. I didn't know her name, she didn't know me, but I prayed for eight years to be led to the one that God has for me and for her to come to know Christ, and God answered that prayer. So I suggest you begin with some serious prayer about who your life mate might be. Number next, I would suggest that uh, as you uh, look at your options, and you zero in on somebody that you think might be the one for you, that you screw up your courage and ask. And I know how hard that is. Because it took me a whole, uh, it took me three days, actually, <laughs> before I was sure that Kim was the one for me. I spent a day on her birthday fasting and praying and I came in that day, sure, and I was going to ask her that night. But we went to see a college uh, roommate of mine and his wife, and on the way back, my car broke down. It just wasn't, it wasn't good. <laughs> I had met Kim in January. We started seeing each other almost every day in May. And on July 
13, 1972, I asked her to marry me. I had told her back in March at a, a little beach trip that 20 of us had gone on that uh, I had never said to a girl, I love you. And I did not intend to say those three words, I love you, until I was ready and willing to follow it up with this, this next sentence, will you marry me? And uh, I kept that promise. She can vouch for it. And in the, in the sanctuary of the Carolina Baptist Church, where I was the pastor, I asked her, I told her, I said, I love you. Will you marry me? And praise God. She said yes. Now that's uh, 48 plus years ago. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. But other than my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, by far and away, the very best thing to happen to me was when Kim Jackson said yes to my proposal of marriage. Quite frankly, I wish we'd have met a few years earlier. I'd married younger. We didn't really know each other until the year we got, we, we had only known each other nine months when we got married. Then we moved to Texas and got acquainted, but that's another story. <laughs> Pray, ask. It's not hard. Pray, ask. Now, I must, I, must, uh, I must warn you against the unequal yoke. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, because as you are contemplating entering into the experience of marriage, you want to make sure that you do not marry someone who is not equally yoked with you. I'm just going to pull this one sentence out of this, this paragraph here. But uh, verse 14, chapter 6, 2 Corinthians, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, in a broader sense, the more things you have in common, the easier it is for you to succeed in marriage. But the scripture is specifically clear that those of us who are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are not to marry unbelievers. That is an un equal yoke. And if you come to talk to Brother Cliff or Brother Kevin, who now do our premarital counseling, they're not going to agree to officiate at your wedding unless both of you are believers. The Lord knows that if a believer marries an unbeliever, it is a recipe for disaster. I'm not saying the marriage can't can't survive, but it's, it's not what it ought to be. And if you marry a child of the devil, you will get the devil for a father-in-law. So just know this. You want to be equally yoked with your husband or wife. If you love Jesus, you want to marry someone who loves Jesus like you do. Furthermore, you want to be in the same church. And you need to do that before you get married, not after so that you can serve the Lord together. 
Now, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Marriage is God's good gift for human flourishing. So, if you are married, then give God thanks. And if you're unmarried, unless God has called you to a life of singleness and celibacy, then begin to pray and seek a mate that God has for you so that you might flourish. That's just basic foundational truth right there. That's marriage 101. Nothing profound about that. But it's, it, is the, it is the basic foundational building block upon which we can build a society. Second truth I want you to see is this. Marriage is threatened by diverse challenges. Let's go back to Proverbs Back to Proverbs, marriage is threatened by many different challenges. Now, these, these challenges are far more numerous than the three that I'm going to mention this morning, but I'm just going to stick with the three that are in Proverbs. If there are others in Proverbs, I didn't see them. There are plenty of others that are out there, but let's just deal with the ones that are in Proverbs. What are those challenges? Well, Solomon, first of all, mentions materialism. Look in chapter 15, verse 27. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 27. There we read, a greedy man brings trouble to his family. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about greed, and including here in Proverbs. We've already dealt with use and misuse of money a few weeks ago. But in this particular case, the specific application is the family. Look at it again. Verse 27. A greedy man brings trouble to his family. How so? Well, it often plays out like this. Because he has a greedy heart, he wants more. Whatever he has, he wants more. Uh, more adult toys. More. Um, more gadgets and gizmos and whatever it is he's got his heart set on. And so he uh, oftentimes works long hours in order to be able to pay off the things that he borrowed on credit to enjoy. And the hours build up and build up and build up and he becomes a workaholic to the extent that he neglects his marriage, he neglects his children becomes a workaholic because he wants more stuff the American dream more stuff and now I've lived long enough to see not only husbands and fathers with a greedy heart but seeing wives and mothers who just go out in the workplace not because they have to have that additional income to survive. I have great sympathy for those single moms and those poor families where the wife has to work to put bread on the table. But I'm talking about those who go out in the workplace because they want to escape their parental responsibilities and because they, they want to have a lake house or they want to have a, a ski boat or something where they really don't need to be satisfied. And so they, they have two working parents and the children go by the wayside. Materialism. Look, at, look again in chapter 15, verse 16 and 17 this time. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf 
with hatred. Notice the contrast here. Uh, Verse 16, a little with great wealth. It's better not to have all the bells and whistles that money can buy if you fear God than to have great wealth and have turmoil in your marriage and in your family. Better to have a meal of vegetables. Better to sit down with cornbread and peas and broccoli where there's love in the household, love between husband and wife, than to have a a big T-bone steak where there's hatred. The parties are all messed up. Remember the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, having food and clothing therewith let us be content for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and many a marriage has failed because husband or wife or both fell in love with money and all that which money can buy and neglected to cultivate their marriage relationship. So materialism is is one of the challenges uh, that Solomon identifies against marriage. Uh, A a second challenge is quarreling, nagging, complaining, criticizing. Look in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 13. A foolish son is his father's ruin. Now notice the next line here. And a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. If you're married to a woman who's nagging and complaining and belly aching, Solomon says just like a like a faucet that just drips, 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 drips. You know anybody like that? Is that you and your marriage? Proverbs 21, verse 9. Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome woman. Yeah, just let me go hide in the attic. One more, chapter 27, verse 15 and 16. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Restraining her is like restraining the wind and grasping oil with a hand. Quarreling, complaining. Criticizing, nagging, unacceptable. Now, Paul is, excuse me, Solomon is singling out the wife. But he could equally single out the husband. Because the wives don't have a monopoly on complaining and bellyaching, do they? Men are equally at fault in this regard. And this is a challenge that will destroy your marriage if you just are continually criticizing your mate. You're too messy, you're too sloppy, you're too lazy, you're too ugly. I mean, God help us. Furthermore, let me say, we're going to have the Lord's Supper tonight, but it will do you little good to come to the Lord's to Sunday worship and act pious around the Lord's Supper table if you've been quarreling around the breakfast table day after day. 
You'll need to repent. I know that because I have to repent. Far more than I'd like to admit. So, we've, we've seen materialism is a challenge. We've seen quarreling is a challenge. Now Solomon gives us a third uh, uh, challenge to the marriage relationship, and that is what I'm calling neglect. Neglect of the relationship. Look in chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 23. It says, an unloved, an unloved woman who is married. But let me just get the context. Let's go back and look in verses 21, 22, and 23. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and a maidservant who mis displaces her mistress. Look at that phrase, last, last line in verse 22, uh, verse, first line in verse 23, an unloved woman who is married. How very sad to be married to a man who does not love his wife. No marriage started out this way, none. No, no bride, a groom ever stood at an altar before a pastor with the idea they don't love each other. Their, their understanding of what love is might be very immature. At that stage, it might be closer to infatuation than true love. But nevertheless, you, you don't enter into the marriage relationship if you think you don't love the person that you are marrying. So how does it come that a woman who is married feels unloved? Or it could be the other way around. Well, I'm going to just look at it from the perspective of the wife, since that's what Solomon deals with here. I, I want to suggest it's just neglect. Before you're married, you court your wife, you do special things for your wife, you take her special places, and then you get married and you quit courting your wife, you take her love for granted, you let the romance fade away by neglect. And if you continue to allow neglect to go on and on and on, your marriage could end up in failure and in divorce court. So, we live, in a, we live in an era when divorce is basically accepted by most people. Uh, you know, well, if you, if you can't make it, just start over with somebody else. And uh, there are very few voices, including some pulpits are silent on this, or appealing to people. No, you can work at your marriage. You can reestablish and rekindle the love relationship that you once had with your husband or wife. It, it won't be easy, but it's worth working at. The fallout from divorce is catastrophic. Just unimaginable heartache. Michael McManus, who has a ministry to marry, for marriage, to help people succeed in their marriage, says, and these are the stats, the children of divorce 
are two times as likely as those from intact parents to drop out of school. They are three times as likely to get pregnant as as teenagers, six times as likely to live in poverty, and 12 times more likely to be incarcerated than the children of divorce. Dr. Judith Wallerstein says when a child enters adulthood, the unexpected legacy of divorce from their parents is this. Two-thirds are unable to form lasting bonds with someone of the opposite sex. They saw mom and dad fight it out and fail, and it just makes it really, really challenging for them to form bonds with somebody of the opposite sex. She tracked 100 children of 100 divorces for 25 years, only 60 of the 100 married. And of those 60, 24 divorced. We sow to the wind, we reap the whirlwind. You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, you reap later than you sow, but you always reap what you sow. Michael Reagan was the adopted son of Ronald Reagan. Former President Reagan, when he was an actor in Hollywood, was married to Jane Wyman. Their marriage failed. She walked out on him. Michael Reagan wrote a a book entitled Twice Adopted, in which he describes being adopted into the Reagan family legally and then adopted into the family of God when he, as an adult, came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he knew what it was to be a son of parents who divorced. Listen to these words from Michael Reagan. Want to hear my definition of divorce? Divorce is where two adults take everything that matters to a child. The child's home, family, security, and sense of being loved and protected and they smash it all up, leave it in ruins on the floor, then walk out and leave the child to clean up the mess. He continues, you've probably never heard that definition of divorce before. Why? Because we adults always look at things like divorce and remarriage through adult eyes, through the eyes of our own grown-up selfishness. We never stop and look at all those issues through the eyes of the child. We're so busy arguing and bickering, so busy insisting on our needs and our rights, so busy breaking crockery and marriage vows that we don't stop and think about the scared little child over in the corner whose entire world is being torn apart. Maybe if we would think a little more about the child and a little less about ourselves, we wouldn't be so quick to pull the divorce trigger and shoot our wedding vows through the heart. Before you decide your marriage is irrevocably beyond repair, come see me. Come see Brother Cliff. Come see one of our pastors. In the course of my 50 plus years as a pastor, I've had the glorious privilege to, on a number of occasions to reofficiate at the second wedding of the couple who divorced each other and God brought them back together and healed their marriage. No one and no marriage 
church is beyond the redeeming grace of God. The wife of a famous musician was asked the secret of staying married to her famous husband. She replied, the main reason is neither one of us has died. That's pretty much what it is right there. Till death do you part. I told Kim years ago, if she ever left me, I was going with her. We're talking about Marriage 101 today. This is just basic stuff right here. This is the foundation. We're building a magnificent marriage, which can be yours. You can have a magnificent marriage, but it comes at a high price, but it's a price well worth paying. We've said marriage is God's good gift for human flourishing. We've said marriage is threatened by diverse challenges. I mentioned three in Proverbs. There are many more. Now, third and finally, I want you to see with me in Ephesians chapter 5, 31, 32, and 33, that marriage portrays Christ and his church. Marriage is not just about the husband and the wife. Marriage is about the symbol of of the relationship that the Lord Jesus Christ has with his church. Now, we read a responsive reading earlier from Ephesians chapter 5, but I just want to pick up the last three verses here, verses 31, 32, and 33. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's God's intention. Leaving, cleaving, Remaining till death do you part. You enter into that one flesh relationship, which is also one body, one spirit. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. I'm coming back to that in just a moment. Verse 33, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, wives... I want you to see in verse 33 that, that uh, your husband needs your respect, and husbands, you need to see that your wife needs your love. Now, both need love and respect, but a, a wife's greatest need is to know that her husband loves her unconditionally, just like Paul describes here uh, in, earlier in this fifth chapter of Ephesians. And a husband's greatest need is, to re, is the respect of his wife. Now, those are the two key words, love and respect. The wife needs love, the husband needs respect. Get that down, you're a long way to having a magnificent marriage. Now go back to verse 32. This is a profound mystery. What is the profound mystery? Christ and the church. The relationship that a husband has with his wife and a wife has with her husband is a, is, a, is a symbol or it portrays what the scripture says that Jesus has with his church. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride and we are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a, a marriage fails, it, it portrays something foreign about what 
the relationship Christ has with the church. A broken marriage portrays a false Christ. A healthy marriage portrays a true Christ. And Jesus is the bridegroom. He's coming at the end of the age for his bride to take us to be with him. We will sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb and be ushered into his eternal kingdom forever and ever. Marriage points to that. So marriage is more than just about a husband loving his wife or a wife respecting her husband, as important as that is. Marriage points to something far more transcendent than that. Points to Christ and our salvation. Cal Muller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said about marriage, marriage is about our happiness, our holiness, and our wholeness, but, he says, it is supremely about the glory of God. When marriage is entered rightly, when marriage vows are kept with purity, when all the goods of marriage are enjoyed in their proper place, God is glorified. He continues, our chief end is to glorify God. And marriage is a means of his greater glory. As sinners, we are all too concerned with our own pleasures, our own fulfillments, our own priorities, our own conception of marriage as a domestic arrangement. The ultimate purpose of marriage is the greater glory of God. And God is most greatly glorified when his gifts are rightly celebrated and received and his covenants are rightly honored and pledged. And indeed, he is. So, husbands and wives who live together in holiness, in humility, in harmony, point to a greater glory, the glory of God. This is God's design. We embrace it by faith. Trust the Spirit of God to work in our lives that our marriages might flourish for our benefit, for the benefit of our sons and daughters, for the greater good of the community in which we find ourselves, and for the great glory of God. As important as the marriage relationship is, it is not nearly as important as the relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a single young man or a single young lady looking for a, a marriage partner, pray and pursue. But far, 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 infinitely more valuable is a relationship with God. The good news is you can have a relationship with God. You've already heard enough gospel in this sermon this morning to be saved. But let me just reiterate it for you. What do I need to have a relationship with God? Just two things. Let me just boil it down to the irreducible minimum, okay? Everybody can get this. You need to know, number one, I am a guilty sinner. I have sinned against God, and I cannot make myself right with God. I am lost and helpless and hopeless on my own. And if you think you can earn right standing with God on your own, you, have, you are sadly and eternally deluded. That's number one. I'm a lost sinner. 
Number two, Jesus is the Son of God who went to Calvary's cross. There he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He arose on the third day that all who trust in him will receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of God, which is eternal life. That's it. There's a lot more to the Christian life than that, but that's where it starts right there. I'm a lost sinner, and I cannot say myself, Jesus is the one and only Savior. He will save me if I put my faith in him. And in an assembly of this many people, I'm sure there are some here today who need to trust Christ. Somebody, you can come to Christ. You can do it today. You take that step toward Jesus, he'll meet you and embrace you and receive you. For as many as receive him, to them gives you the power to become the children of God if you'll receive him. We're going to stand in just a moment to sing our song of decision and commitment. Be pastors at the front of each one of these aisles who want to talk to you, pray with you, show you how you can know in your heart of hearts the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. Can you think of any good reason why you shouldn't come? There is none. God brought you to this hour. God brought you to this worship service. You're not here by accident or happenstance. You're here so you can have a life-transforming encounter with the resurrected Christ. The decision is now yours. Come. Come to Jesus while we stand and sing.